Let us pray. O Lord, we are scattered across the world, and still we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the name of goodness, of love, and of broken community, in the name of meaning and of feeling, and I hope you don't screw me, in the name of darkness and light and ungraspable twilight, in the name of mealtimes and sharing and caring by firelight, in the name of action, of peace, and of human redemption, in the name of eating, of drinking, and table confession, in the name of sadness, regret, and holy obsession, in the holy name of anger, the spirit of aggression, in the name of forgive and forget, and I hope I get over this, in the name of fathers and mothers and unholy spirits, in the name of beauty and broken and beaten up daily, in the name of seeing our creeds and believing in maybe, We gather here a room full of strangers to speak of our hope land and talk of our dangers, to make sense of our thinking, to authenticate lives, to humanize feeling, and to stop telling lies. This is the opening to a poem titled In the Name by Padraig Otuma. This poem unfolds across many stanzas a litany that provocatively and compassionately names those things we would rather keep hidden. Identities, forces, hopes, pains, loves, things that shape our lives in seen and unseen ways. Patrick Otuma is an Irish theologian, teacher, and poet who has spent nearly two decades working with groups in conflict mediation all around the world, including in his own home counties of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Because of this work, he is intently interested in the power of language and the power of naming for the healing and the harming of community. I took a workshop, virtual workshop, with Padraig this past summer. And when I emailed him to ask about using this poem, I also asked him what drew him to write it. He responded that he was creating a rhythmic litany, writing in some sense a reflection on names. I was interested in exploring the names of other things that affect our lives greatly, the chosen things, but most often the unchosen things. The poem concludes with these two stanzas. In the name of touch-up, and breakup and of breakdown and weeping in the name of therapy and Prozac and full-hearted breathing in the name of sadness and madness and years since I've smiled in the name of the unknown, the alien and the holy in exile in the name of the named and the unnamed and the names of the nameless, in the name of the prayers that repeat, I wish I could change this, in the name of goodness and kindness and intentionality, in the name of harbor and shelter and family. Like so many and so many of Padraig's pieces and so much of his work, this poem claims space. 
claims space to gather the unmentionables from the corners of our lives, to name them, and to place them in the center of our gathering. We hear a similar confrontation, a similar wrestling match over naming and gathering and authority in our scriptures today. It unfolds in the, throughout the book of Exodus and particularly in this passage between Moses and the people, the elders and God. And this confrontation also unfolds in our Gospel of Matthew passage from today. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to be here? These are the questions that the chief priests toss at Jesus while he's teaching. We don't know the exact tone of their voice, but we do know that the priests are not casual bystanders, and Jesus, at this point in the gospel, is not a naive newcomer on the religious scene. This story in Matthew is not from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is from the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has just ridden into the teeming city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, being heralded as a king. He has stormed the temple and overturned the tables. If you look at the scripture passages around this one, you will see that Jesus is full of angry language for the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, his own disciples. Jesus even curses a fig tree. He is flowing with fierce words and a fiery spirit, and he will not be silenced. He is yanking power struggles out of the dark. He is exposing hypocrisies to the light. He is pulling every shadowy assumption out of every dusty corner, and he is throwing them into the center of the table. He's in the temple preaching to the people. And the chief priests confront him to ask, by what authority are you doing these things? In light of the heightened tensions that must have been present, we might think that this would be a perfect moment for Jesus to put on a mighty show of power and glory. This is his big chance to claim the prophetic greatness of Moses and Elijah to exalt his royal lineage that traces back through David. Now is his chance to show what it looks like when every knee on earth and under the earth bow to his name. By what authority are you doing these things? But Jesus doesn't put on a show. And his response is, as usual for him, surprising to the onlookers. He talks about John the baptizer. This might not seem like an odd response to us here and now, for indeed we have the gift of historic hindsight. We know how the ministry of John the Baptist has lived on, but for the onlookers at the time, this reply would have been odd at best, dangerous at worst. After all, while John was notable and a notable celebrity in some ways, he drew crowds, he gave compelling testimonies, he got King Herod riled up, John would not have been recognized as a major figure by the power structures of that day. He wasn't preaching from a seat of authority. 
He wasn't a prophet of which over a thousand years of stories had been told. He was some guy on the margins, ranting and raving at the farthest edges of the city who then got himself arrested and killed. No wonder the chief priests are confused. When they ask, who gave you this authority? Jesus aligns himself with an executed prisoner. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He doubles down. He tells a story about a son who says an unkind, dishonorable thing to his father. I will not help you. But then, who changes his mind and is deemed righteous despite his waffling. Jesus keeps going. He says that the lowest on the social totem pole are getting into heaven before those who are on the highest part of the social pole, the chief priests. By what authority are you doing these things? The chief priests question his power, and Jesus doesn't bring forth the trumpet of angels. He talks about tax collectors and prostitutes and wayward sons. The elders ask Jesus to justify his authority, and Jesus does not call down a witness from the might of heaven. He calls upon the witness of the marginalized peoples of the earth. When we talk about the power and authority of God, here is the plot twist, the spoiler, the secret that is hidden in plain sight throughout all of our Gospels. Jesus Christ alone is Lord, but Jesus never keeps this power to himself alone. This is what those who hoard and hold power on earth cannot understand. That the power of heaven is a sharing, generous outpouring of everlasting authority. This truth stretches across all of our Bible. At every turn, from the Hebrew scriptures to the final revelation, we witness the creator of heaven and earth refusing to do this work alone. Through the elders and the prophets and the apostles and the disciples, the triune God continually reaches out, enters into covenant with us, calls all creatures into a creative cultivation of community here on earth. We declare that Jesus is the name above every name, and yet the scriptures reveal at every turn that Jesus is the one who calls us by name. He reaches out to Mary and Matthew, to Martha and Thomas and Peter. Jesus calls these women and men into creative discipleship and ordained ministry. Jesus calls us disciples and friends and pulls us out of the nooks and crannies and comfort zones of our lives, calling us out of alleyways and deserts and dusty corners, bringing us by the power of the Spirit into the company of heaven with the saints on the earth. By what authority are you doing these things? The chief priests ask. We can imagine Jesus' reply, by what authority? Open your eyes. Use your ears. Pay attention. Look around. Look at the communities that are coming back to life. Listen to the people who are being given hope. 
See the relationships that are blooming with grace and mercy. Discover what God is doing right now, here, all around you. My authority is here because God is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. This week in the many recollections of the esteemed justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I was reminded again that Ginsburg, in her formative legal years, was convicted and inspired by the work of Pauli Murray. Murray, as you might know, was a Durham-born lawyer, professor, civil rights activist, and eventually Episcopalian priest, born in 1910, right down the road here in West Durham. Murray was also born poor, black, queer, and female in the early 20th century. Pushed to every margin at every moment of her life, still she worked and fought until she was allowed some space at a few tables of authority. Her biography is remarkable, worthy of 10 books and a 15-part miniseries. But I was struck about her describing her moments when she decided to pursue ordained ministry in the Episcopal Church. Here is how she writes about that decision in her life. She writes about this in her autobiography, Song in a Weary Throat. The death of my close friend Renee changed my life. In Renee's dying hours, I had come face to face with my own mortality. For the second time in my life, I'd been called upon to be with a devout Christian whom I loved in the crisis of death, and to minister in ways I associated only with the ordained clergy. As I reflected upon these experiences, the thought of ordination became unavoidable, yet the notion of a call was so astounding when it burst into my consciousness that I went about in a daze. My sense of unworthiness had insulated me against entertaining such a possibility. Polly Murray consults with some close friends and joined the diocese of a sympathetic bishop. At the time, women were not ordained in the Episcopal Church as priests, but with support, she's allowed to begin the process for holy orders. Murray entered seminary, and despite her fortitude in law school, she found seminary to be an intensely intellectual and emotional experience. Through unswerving struggles, still she prevailed and joined the women advocating to be allowed entrance into the ordained priesthood. When that day finally came, when the vote passed to allow women to become priests in the Episcopal Church, Murray writes in her autobiography, I was alone when I learned the result of the vote. But almost immediately afterward, I got an amazing telephone call that once more linked my present and my past in an almost mystical continuity. Earlier that summer, I had received a letter from the Reverend Peter James Lee, rector of the Chapel of the Cross in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Reverend Lee wrote that he had learned through my previous book about my relationship to the 19th century Smith family of Chapel Hill. She describes how her great-grandmother, the slave Harriet, was owned by Joseph Smith and was raped by his son, Sidney Smith. And so then she had a daughter named Cornelia who was taken in by Sidney Smith's older sister, Mary Ruffin Smith, who brought her into the home and church and raised her as an Episcopalian. 
Polly Murray d- continues with her description of Lee, the Reverend Lee's letter to her. He described how in the parish register of the Chapel of the Cross, the Reverend Lee had found the record of my grandmother Cornelius' baptism. On the evening of the vote for women in the Episcopal Church, Reverend Peter Lee telephoned me from Minneapolis. I want to invite you to celebrate your first Holy Eucharist as a priest at the Chapel of the Cross. I can think of no more appropriate symbol of what has happened here today than having you preside at the altar in the same chapel building where your grandmother Cornelia was baptized in 1854. I was stunned by this prospect, and I was overjoyed at last by the proposal. I traveled to North Carolina to celebrate my first Holy Eucharist. On Sunday, February 13th, in the little chapel where my grandmother Cornelia had been baptized more than a century earlier, as one of the five servant children belonging to Miss Mary Ruffin Smith, I read the gospel. There was great irony in the fact that the first woman priest to preside at the altar of the church to which Mary Ruffin Smith had given her deepest devotion should be the granddaughter of a little girl she had sent to the balcony reserved for slaves. But more than irony marked the moment. Whatever future ministry I might have as a priest, it was given to me that day to be a symbol of healing. All the strands of my life had come together, descendant of slave and of slave owner. I had already been called poet, lawyer, teacher, and friend. Now, I was empowered to minister the sacrament of one in whom there is no north or south, no black or white, no male or female, only the spirit of love and reconciliation drawing us all toward the goal of human wholeness. Polly Murray was called by her Christ from the margins of a parish church register and placed at the center of a radical historical moment. By what authority are you doing these things? We are the church in the world, worshiping, teaching, protesting, consoling, breathing, rejoicing, enduring, dying, and being brought back to life over and over again. By what authority are we doing these things here and now? By the authority of the Spirit who brings people from the crowds to dance in the courts of power. By the authority of God who calls people from the balcony of enslaved persons and brings them to the altar as an anointed priest. By the authority of Jesus, our Christ, who even now calls God's children from the corners of the world and invites them to sit at the banquet table of heaven, prepared and placed in their midst, whoever they are, wherever they are from. Jesus invites us to the table. Thanks be to God. Amen.